Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Who wants to be an ISA millionaire? If a 22-year-old starts saving £250 a month into the new lifetime ISA, could they really grow their investments to £1 million by their 65th birthday? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, personal finance editor. Amazingly, new research suggests it is possible for younger investors to build up a million-pound ISA portfolio, but keep listening to hear FT Money's Kate Bailey dissect the evidence behind this audacious claim. I'll also be chatting to Kate about how freelance workers can use flexible ISAs to smooth out the lumps and bumps in their income. And if you're listening to this thinking, I know I need a stocks and shares ISA, but I just don't know how to get started, then relax. Moira O'Neill from Interactive Investor is here to answer all of your questions. And last but not least, after this financial education boot camp, we figured that listeners might need some light relief. So James Max, talk radio star and the writer of the FT's Rich People's Problems column, is here to reveal what it's really like to work inside an investment bank. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear an awful lot about the ISA, short for Individual Savings Account, as we approach the end of the tax year on April 5th. This is the point in the calendar year when you pass go on the £20,000 annual tax-free savings allowance. That's more than, frankly, even I can afford to save into an ISA every year, but don't be put off by that large figure. The key to building up a decent sum for your future years rests in a much more achievable principle, says Kate Burley, saving little and often. Welcome to The Money Show, Kate. Thank you. Good morning. So let's start by running the numbers on that million pound claim. Yes. So according to investment platform AJ Bell, it is possible for a millennial to become an ISA millionaire as long as they're putting aside regular, albeit fairly hefty savings into a lifetime ISA every month. Now, this is the ISA that was launched in 2017, giving people between 18 and 40 a 25% bonus on subscriptions up to £4,000 a year. Now, AJ Bell says that if someone started saving aged 22 into a LISA, putting aside just under £250 a month, which they would then pay into a normal stocks and shares ISA once they'd hit that limit, they could be sitting on a pot worth just over a million pounds by age 65. Now, that is assuming, though, investment growth of 7% a year and then charges of 1% a year. Now, someone starting at a later age of 30 would have to be putting aside just under £470 a month to get the same result. So 
two things, you know, those those monthly subscriptions could be fairly high for some people of that age. And even 7% stock market return, that's fairly high considering the anemic returns we've been looking at recently. But it does show that regular saving, regular investing is a good idea. Well, exactly. I mean, regardless of the assumptions that they've used in that kind of mythical figure of a million pounds, it's quite a simple principle. If you save some money regularly every month and increase the amount you save as you earn more, then you're going to end up with, over time, with a lot more money than you started out with because of the power of compounding. Exactly. Yes. It just goes to show, yes, that the power of investment returns, you know, the power of your portfolio growing as investment returns grow uh, is a really powerful thing and you could end up with a fairly hefty pot. So with the lifetime ISA, we should add that even though the 25% bonus sounds good, you can pay in up to £4,000 of your ISA allowance per year and the government will give you up to £1,000 in the form of a bonus. Don't throw over saving into your workplace pension necessarily to save into a lifetime ISA because your employer will pay into your pension alongside you. So it's likely that that could be a better deal than the free £1,000 that you're getting from the government. And the second caveat is with the lifetime ISA, if you want to take the money out... Yes, you face <laughs> a really, a really big penalty. Yeah, you can. The idea is that you stay invested either until age 60 or you use this lifetime ISA to buy your first home. There are some caveats with both of those things, really. The first home has to be under a value of £450,000. And if you do want to take your money out for any other reason um, or before age 60, you face a penalty of 25% on the value of the portfolio, which is obviously pretty discouraging. So let's move on now to freelance workers in the gig economy. Now, you've written a column this week, the Millennial Money column, about how there are more and more people who are self-employed in their 20s and 30s. And obviously, saving into a pension or an ISA for them is quite difficult because they don't know how much money's coming in months to months. So how can ISA saving work for them? Yeah, well, I, I was looking at some of the reasons that millennials struggle to save. And, you know, we always hear this is, well, partly our own uh, fecklessness, potentially, uh, partly because, you know, millennials don't earn as much. But I've just looked at the number of people who are on freelance contracts or working in the gig economy. Zero hours contracts. Zero hours contracts, exactly. In kind of insecure work, um, facing issues of this kind of uncertain, uneven cash flow, uneven income, and also many of them struggling with late payments, just not being paid on time, you know, wasting endless days chasing invoices. So all of this is becoming a big issue as the world of work becomes increasingly flexible. More and more millennials in the future will be self-employed or on zero hours contracts. Now, I've looked at flexible ISAs as part of this solution, I guess. Since 2016, ISAs have been flexible. And theoretically, you can take money out of an ISA and replace it within the same tax year without using up your £20,000 annual tax-free savings allowance. So I could pay £4,000, say, into my cash ISA. A big bill that I'm expecting to be paid by a client doesn't come in. So I could take £2,000 out of the cash ISA when I get the invoice paid, I could then put that money back in, but I can still pay in a further £16,000 to get up to my 20000 allowance. Exactly. The, the things to be aware of are that not everybody offers this and it only applies to the cash part of your ISA portfolio. So you can't do it with stocks and shares investments, for example. But you could do it if you had cash in your within shares. a qualifying stocks and shares ISA or cash within a innovative finance ISA, which people used to invest in peer-to-peer 
Exactly. But you do need to check that your provider offers it because although the government has said this is something that you can do, in fact, when you ask providers, some don't even seem to know about it. So, you know, you have to make sure that you've checked with the ISA provider first. But this is a really good way for people who are unsure whether they will need to fall back on that buffer, you know, but don't want to be kind of pulling money out of an ISA and using up the tax-free allowance in doing so. And potentially... Once they've saved, surpassed a certain level of savings within the cash ISA product, they might think, OK, I don't need a buffer of £20,000. So before the end of the tax year, I could actually transfer some of that cash into an investment ISA, stocks and shares ISA for the long term. Yeah, because people would generally say that if you're going to need the money, you know, in the next kind of year or so, or if you have any less than a five year time horizon, then you shouldn't really be investing that money because it's just too uncertain. But yeah, once you get past that buffer and you think, actually, I could invest over the medium to long term, then it's very wise to move some of that money into stocks and shares and start start investing, you know, in earnest. Well, thank you very much, Kate, for sharing those thoughts. Frankly, it would be nice to see similar ways that the pensions industry could be more flexible for the growing number of self-employed workers in the UK. So we're going to move on now. I should say, actually, before we carry on, the reason that we're talking all about ISIS this week is because on Saturday, FT Money has got a bumper 28-page edition packed full of everything you need to know about ISIS, be they stocks and shares, peer-to-peer, inheritance tax avoiding or cash. (laughs) But now that we've completed the warm-up, I will waste no further time in introducing Moira O'Neill, Head of Personal Finance at Interactive Investor. Moira is the financial equivalent of a personal trainer, I would say, who is here to whip our finances into shape. So if we want a cash ISA, Moira, we go to a bank or a building society, it's obvious. But how do we get started with a stocks and shares ISA? We have to get uh, think about something called an investment platform, which has got nothing to do with railway stations. It's more like an online supermarket where you can hold all of your investments and you can pick and choose what you want. Now, it, it may look a bit daunting, but... These platforms, one of which is Interactive Investor, where I'm from, have become a lot more user-friendly over the years. A lot of them come with starter fund recommendations or select fund lists to help you sift through the thousands Mm. of investments out there. And also, when you take out an account, the platform, you can hold all your shares, funds, ISAs, even your pensions under the same roof. You may just have one password one account, one statement. So it makes um, your life easier to manage. If you feel really, really unsure, so you don't think you're ever going to be able to choose um, from a a small selection, then maybe go for something different called a robo-advisor, which will make that choice for you. Or if you really want your hand held, then you'll have to go and um, speak to an independent financial advisor. But you may find there that you have to have a minimum level of investments to get started. And they may they may want, want you to be putting aside significant sums in order for that to give you that advice and for you to be able to pay the fee for the advice. Exactly. So if you're a DIY investor, then... Stocks and shares ISAs are a brilliant place to start. Obviously, anyone can buy investments. You can buy investments and put them in a pension. You can buy an an investment and put them inside an ISA. You're going to tell us about the tax advantages of doing that a bit later. But first of all, let's stick to what readers tell us is the hardest part, the kind of investments you can select. Can you decodify some of the jargon for us? Okay, it is complicated, but it really comes down to how long you're st- you want to invest for. And the longer you can spend in the market, the more risk you can take with your money. 
I would just start with a fund. I know a lot of investors like to plunge in and pick companies like Tesco, Vodafone, etc. But um, if you're starting with a relatively small amount of money as a beginner, I would start with a tracker fund. And a tracker fund is a jargon again, I'm afraid. Um, This is something that's going to deliver the average returns of the stock market. So you're not going to run the risk of picking something that plummets dramatically and you lose all your money tomorrow Um, nor are you going to have the advantage of picking something that soars in value tomorrow either but you'll get the average returns there's a really great range of tracker funds called vanguard life strategy which is aimed at various different risk profiles so you can choose whether you think you're an average risk taker or you're more cautious person or you're more adventurous with your investments and they are very very low cost And they instantly diversify even small amounts of your money among hundreds and hundreds of companies around the world. And they also diversify your money between shares in companies and bonds, which perform slightly differently. So you're you're spreading your risk again. So before the podcast, um, I've been in touch with some listeners who've got questions about ISA. So let's run through a couple of those. Um, Now, this one says, they say don't put all of your eggs into one basket. So how should I spread out my investments? Ah, right. Well, she's, she's right. You shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. And the investment jargon this relates to is called diversification. You should be um, trying to take out lots of different investments. And the idea is that if you have losses in one area of your investments, you may have gains in others and you're spreading your risks. And you can get that diversification by using a fund that has a mix of different assets within it and is professionally managed by a fund manager. What kind of names do people call these? You look for. Um, you could look for a mixed asset. If you look at something called the Investment Association, which is the organisation that all the fund managers belong to, they have fund sectors there. Explain what types of funds are out there and what types of risk profiles there are. So that's quite a useful place to start. And then when you're thinking about asset allocation, another term that might be unfamiliar to new listeners to the podcast, that's basically talking about spreading your risks, not just across like different sectors of an industry or different areas of the stock market, but also about where those investments are, the geography. Yeah, I mean, lots of investors start out thinking they need to just invest in their home country in the London stock market. And of course, there are amazing opportunities around the world particularly among companies we know in the US, uh, things that might be familiar with, Facebook, Amazon, um, the tech giants, um, and also think places like China, emerging markets where there's great growth opportunities. So I think you need to think when you're starting and investing, if there's, there's a whole world of investing out there, make sure you're getting access to all of it, not just the UK and the London stock market. Okay. Another question, this is actually from somebody who works within the FT. She says, I've got a lump sum, but I'm scared of investing it all in one go. Yeah, well, she's probably very wise there, because if you put things all in one go, then there is the risk that tomorrow or next week or next month, it falls in value. And we have got a bit of a bumpy stock market. We've got Brexit on the horizon. Um, you mentioned the B word. Sorry, Moira. sorry, Claire. Um, <laughs> and the conventional way that people avoid all these bumps in the market is to drip feed their money in. And if you rather than investing in a one one off chunk, and this actually smooths out your investment journey. So if you buy one month, you might be buying 
more investments because the market's fallen. And if you buy the next month, you might be buying fewer investments because the market's risen. So if you put the same amount in every month, it can work out really to your advantage. It's actually, in the jargon, it's called pound cost averaging. In theory, it does stop things yo-yoing about and it can also boost your returns over the long term. And a good idea, as we heard from Kate's example, to get into the habit of regularly investing, even if it's a very small sum every month. Most of the platforms, the minimum investment to put into a fund every month would be £25. I should also point out that most platforms have something called a cash park facility whereby you can use up your ISA allowance, you can put all your cash in to the wrapper and then you can invest at your leisure. So um, although it may not be earning very much interest, you can then smooth things out. So say drip feed in the allowance over the next eight or nine or ten months. And then you can benefit from passing go and getting another £20,000 allowance um, the next time the tax year begins. So then finally, I've saved the <laughs> the hardest one to the end so we don't lose listeners, but lots of people have emailed in saying, can you explain why ISAs are described as being tax-free? Well, if you were investing outside an ISA, your investments are potentially subject to capital gains tax. So that's any... if they rise in value yeah. and then you make a big profit when you sell, yeah. you'll have to pay tax on that. Yeah. So there's capital gains tax and there's also income tax on the income that comes out of your investments too. With an ISA, you avoid those two. And also, there are other advantages in terms of uh, inheritance tax. So mm. if you put something called AIM companies into an ISA, some, some AIM companies, it doesn't apply to all, and you held them for two years, then you can get some inheritance tax advantages too. Uh, it's not something that may be around forever because I know there's been a lot of lobbying to remove that allowance, but it is an advantage at the moment. And crucially, what a lot of people absolutely love about the tax benefits of ISIS is when you come to retire and you're drawing your income or drawing money out of your ISA, you don't have to put it on your tax return. Woohoo! It's, so you just draw it out. And, and people love that because they can just, uh, it's so flexible, you can take what you want um, and you don't have to declare it as income. And it won't push you up into a higher tax bracket exactly. either. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's Moira O'Neill. You can read lots and lots of different articles, as I said, in FT Money this weekend or online, ft.com slash money. We have Moira quoted in a piece about the basics of ISA investing. We have a piece about how inheritance tax ISAs work, which Moira mentioned. And we have lots and lots of other things which are designed to answer all of your questions, including pieces about the costs of investing and even the best rates on cash ISAs. So I feel you've done your now, listeners, you've listened to the hard financial talk on the podcast. So if I asked you what you thought it might be like to work for an investment bank, what would you say? I'm guessing you'd think of two things. One, the horrendously long hours. And two, paychecks and bonuses that are fatter than fat. Well, James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist, used to be an investment banker. And in his latest column for us, he confessed that while he didn't miss the backbreaking amounts of work, he did miss the joyous moment of the annual bonus arriving. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much indeed. Always a pleasure. Well, let's start from the beginning. Tell us, this is 15 odd years ago, about the job interview that you had to go and work for a US investment bank in London. Dare I say it is almost 20 years ago, but I'd been working for a firm of property advisors and 
At the time, American investment banks were not prevalent in London. They had small satellite offices, but they had grand designs on growing. So they were going to come and take market share. They then had to staff up and they had to learn not only the UK, but the European markets. So they were quite interested in people who were involved in international transactions. I'd been advising German open property funds buying huge commercial real estate here in the UK. And clearly my activities had piqued the interest of one particular investment banker. Uh, And we'd met on the circuit and started meeting and meeting. And he said, have you ever thought about working for an investment bank? And I said, well, I thought about it, but I don't necessarily think I've got the right qualifications. He said, well, you might be wrong. We need to talk. So this dalliance and dancing had been going on for a couple of years. And he said, look, when you're in the US, go meet with these people. Then we got serious. When you get serious, if you are what's known as a lateral hire, so you're not coming out of one of their preferred universities, normally Oxford or Cambridge, uh, or indeed one of the American uh, top universities, then uh, and you haven't trained and haven't done the analyst programme in an investment bank, you are what's known as a lateral hire, which means that you're being taken because of your expertise or market knowledge in another sector, and then you'll be schooled in investment banks and what they do. So that means that you have to be interviewed by more people. And in my case, it was 18 different people. 18? 18, one eight. Uh, And every single one of them has to say yes, by the way. So if one person says no, and the first time I was interviewed and went through all this, one person did say no. I'm still in contact with them. I've got your number. And one of them did say no. And then we had to do it all again the next year. And and then there was quite a lot of schooling of that one individual to say yes, because because a lateral hire for an investment bank is a risk. Because you don't have the skills that they say you need to have in order to be an investment banker. And they're taking the risk that they can teach them to you. So they took the risk on you. They did. And you were given the job. I love the bit in your article where you said at first I couldn't understand a word that anybody was saying. No, I had no idea what they were talking about. They could have been, look, they could have been talking. I was the first English person to join the team. I had no idea what some of the sort of customary things were. They were all talking about, you know, when you're starting to talk about private equity and public equity and all these markets and then securitization and, and, I don't know, pericobobulations, all sorts of things, long words that come in, they're all sesquipedalians in there. A sesquipedalian is a person who uses a long word where a short word will do. Is that an oxymoron? Anyway, look, no, they they just go off and they start using all this technical jargon. I mean, you were talking about it earlier in the podcast in financial terms. Just multiply it by a gazillion. And, And then also I had to deal with the fact that American culture, where they may use the same language, very, very different compared to the way that English people do business. I mean, they don't, they frown upon drinking at lunchtime, uh, but <laughs> which even 20 years ago, delicious. Anyway, that, that sort of, no, it's, it's just like not acceptable. But there are a whole range of other things that were not acceptable and that they didn't really understand. They had, I couldn't understand, they had meetings about meetings. So you had a meeting in order to pre-wire the meeting that you were going to have. And then you had a meeting afterwards to check that everybody agreed to do the things that we're doing in the meeting. And then if any, you couldn't cut across somebody in a meeting and say, actually, no, that's not a good idea. If it wasn't pre-scripted. Good Lord. Unbelievable. So you had to learn how to do this stuff. And as I, I mean, one of the comments that, you know, is one of the people, we had loads of comments on the thing. I, I said, look, they said, what have you been doing? What's this reading thing you've been doing? And I said, it's it's not reading, it's reading. It's a university. <laughs> you know, you, you have to deal with the fact that if it's not uh, Oxbridge, I thought Oxbridge was a university. I mean, you know, if it's not Oxford or Cambridge, they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't think anything else exists. 
And then they think that you're frightfully quaint from the way they... I mean, I know that I'm talking slight stereotypes here, but we are dealing with a bank that 20 years ago was coming over to the UK in order to expand their European platform. Of course, now they're indigenous. They know exactly what's doing. They're, they're completely part of the culture. And that business model has proved to be enormously successful. What they have done, these ideas that they brought with them, for example, that franchise... And by that, I mean at the importance of the brand name, the brand recognition, franchise, super important. The paying people huge amounts of money if you do well, as opposed to just being a, a jolly nice bloke. They didn't have any of this. We're going to recruit, you know, the, the son of this and the brother of that and the lardy dar and the lord this and the, you know, whatever. And the red trousered that they don't care because they didn't understand. They don't know. They're, they're class less. And that completely disrupted the market. But when you had your one of your final interviews and you got around to talking about the question of money, you were a bit surprised by the salary that you were offered. Well, I was quite, because I was always told that if you're going to move a job, somebody's headhunting you, you expect to get 25% more total comp in a year than you would. Most of that is made up through your base salary. And the reason for that is that you will probably not get a pay rise for 18 months after you've joined because you'll miss the cycle. Unless you join in exactly the right time of the cycle of the business that you're working for, and that never happens, prepare for the fact that you could be on the same deal for 18 months. So when they said to me, look, your salary is probably going to be the same as what you've got at the moment. I, thought, I was a bit sniffy. I was like, what? Are... Anyway, so... Bankers are supposed to be the most well-paid in the world. Absolutely. And he said, look, that's not our psychology. He said, look, we pay people with enough money to be able to live. So this salary is pretty good. But you got, he said to me, 60% of your salary as a bonus last year. And apparently that in your sector is really good. Let me just be clear, he said. And I remember the look in his eyes. The glint. He said... Our bonuses are not percentages of salary. They are multiples of salary. Whoa. And it just... And suddenly... Uh, oh. Uh, oh. OK. And so when you begin to realise what, what is on offer... And it's not to say that they're just going to hand it over to you. You know, some of the comments... Oh, you know, this is easy money. This is an easy choice. Da, da, da. You know, it, it's not easy you have to perform and they are so sophisticated with how they measure performance and it's not just oh look how much money i made for the company it's how much cross-selling you did it's whether you made an effort it's whether you recruited people and i know that you know every so whether often, your colleagues I'm, liked you or not yeah i mean it, it, it's not whether they like hmm. you it's whether they like working with you that's very different so you you can hate somebody but you can work well with them but somebody who behaves they were already on some of the you know intolerable behaviour that we see in various organisations where people become super wealthy and then they behave like absolute cretins. That is, that, you know, that was ironed out. You couldn't behave appallingly. You were caught out. You were called out and you were, you, your bonus would be pulled to pieces if you didn't go along with the absolute franchise sort of methodology of, of treating your colleagues with respect and working. You know, but it was an amazing place to work, by the way. I've never worked with such intelligent people. Well, you like to stir things up, as we know. There were over 120 comments on your column this time, which is very impressive. And we can actually tell from the website metrics on FT.com that in the week that your column was published, people spent more time reading your article in minutes and seconds than any other article on the FT's website. Doesn't now, it say a lot about society? It's <laughs> shocking you lot. <laughs> now, I think that's because they're enjoying the banter of the comments underneath your column so much. So tell us your three favourites. Oh my God, my three favourites. Well, so CT said, I wonder if that's Chris Tarrant, who knows? 
It's sadly grotesque that this industry exists like this. If he thinks he worked hard and actually deserved whatever amount of rent he was able to extract from other people's money, he should try having a real job. Maybe try being a neurosurgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon and get us back to work and risk and stress. Anyway, so I then replied and I said, look, it it is quite a difficult job to do. And if anybody could do it, then, you know, we all would be doing it. And it is a real job. And then I was questioned again, what are you what a surgeon or an investment banker? You know, what's the difference trying to work out is investment banking where you're extracting this stuff? Is it a real job? And I think the point is, look, it is a real job. And while some people may say that keeping people alive is uh, more important, that's important too. They're just different jobs and they require different skills. Another one, Jolly Green Giant said, 48, referring to my uh, age, which is uh, obviously in there, 48, my ass." <laughs> I, I know. And I said, I know. I look in the mirror and I think 32. <laughs> so another one then went on to say, Alan Partridge meets loads of money. To which I replied, aha, whop your wad on the counter. <laughs> so, look, there was a bit of banter this week. But I think the point about this is that if you've never worked in an investment bank, it is an extraordinary world. And I recognise that it, I've been very privileged to work there. But it is an amazing place and people do get paid for doing a proper job. It is not easy. And it's not easy because technically the skills you have to have are very difficult to obtain and to learn and to maintain. But also the mental pressure. You know how people say tennis is a mental game. Investment banking is a mental game as well. It's um, you know it's a marathon, not a sprint. You have but you have to keep going and going and going and going. And there are a lot of knockbacks along the way. Deals don't happen. Things don't happen. Things don't go your way. Markets. You know you have to come in and, and, and work at strange hours. I mean it is it's an extraordinary job. But I'm really pleased that I did it. But I'm really pleased I'm out of it. Well, thanks very much there, Sir James Max. You can read his latest column and all of the comments on our website right now at ft.com slash money and he'll be back in the pages of FT Money before too long. I believe you might be writing about Brexit for your next column. <gasps> Shock Can I find anything to say about Brexit? Oh, drop the B word. That people haven't found. I think I found one. OK, well, I dread to think what the comments section will be like on that, which brings us to the end of the FT Money Show. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to read more of our articles, as I said, you can find them all at ft.com slash money. If you'd like to get in touch with us or suggest a topic for a future podcast, we are all ears. Money at ft.com is our email address. And if you would like to tweet or follow us on Twitter to receive news updates, our handle is at FT Money. We will be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.